Chapter Three of the Randolphs by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: Subsoiling. Where is she? Said a new voice in the kitchen, and Helen in the pantry was half pleased, half annoyed, and wholly surprised to recognize the voice as belonging to Ermina. She came out at once. Mrs. Ermina Harper had been gone from home only a few months, but it is surprising how much one can change in a few months' time. The instant that Helen turned the knob of the pantry door and took a glimpse of her through the crack, she felt the change, that subtle, mysterious change that shows in the poise of the head and the curve of the lips, and indeed everywhere. Mrs. Harper wore her hair done in a fashion that was new to Helen's secluded life, it was wonderfully becoming to her. She wore a travelling dress of rich soft grey, with a faint pinkish tinge to it that fitted her complexion precisely. It was simply made, more simply than Helen Monroe had ever made her dresses, but every fold was exactly on the bias, and every plate was exactly as large as the plate next to it, and over the whole garment hovered that mysterious, unmistakable something that marks the well-dressed lady but it was not in all these things alone that the change consisted. Helen did not know what it was, and, as I said, she felt rather than saw it. A single instant sufficed to take in all the details that I have been giving you, then she went forward to meet her sister. They had not been loving sisters, you will remember. They had not been congenial sisters at all. But, for all that, they were sisters and Ermina had never been from home before. She turned eagerly as Helen came, and her kiss was warm and clinging, more tender than any kiss that Helen had felt for a long time. "'Where in the world did you come from?' she said, trying to drown the rush of feeling which the kiss had brought in an unusual roughness of tone. "'I thought you were to be gone for a century or so, and do no end of wonderful travelling, before we had the honour of seeing you again.' Ermina laughed. "'We were to,' she said pleasantly. "'But Mr. Harper had a telegram, or a series of them, that changed many of his plans. We had to come to New York, and as I was hungering and thirsting for a sight of home, we ran up here. Maria, can't I really see father until after tea? It seems a long time to wait.' "'I don't think you ought,' Maria began with a troubled face. You see, he does not expect you, and a little excitement before he has his tea is apt to leave him with— What nonsense! interrupted Helen. You make a perfect muff of father, and would like to of all the rest of us. It is extremely likely that seeing Ermina will injure him. She is his daughter as well as yourself, you should remember. Come on, Ermina, I will take you to him." Ermina stood near her, and at this point she passed an arm winningly around her waist. "'After all,' she said pleasantly, "'perhaps it will be better to wait until I have a good sight at all your faces. You don't know how like a baby I feel. How delightful that gingerbread smells! I am glad you hit upon this particular afternoon to have one. Mr. Harper is fond of them, and I remember that you used to make remarkably good ones, Helen.' Again that sense of the peculiar change that had enveloped Ermina came to her sister and kept her silent. They had a very merry tea. Tom and Grace came in just as they were sitting down, 
and Maria's heart glowed with pleasure and pride to see the cordial greeting that the rich brother-in-law gave to the car-driver. It was a very sore spot to Maria's heart that this young, handsome brother seemed to be actually pinned down to a life that most effectually cut him off from society and companionship. It was strange how every avenue to better employment seemed to be closed. Tom laughed about it cheerfully, and made gay remarks about the improvements that he was going to have when he rose to the position of stockholder in the road. But Maria could not laugh. She oftener cried. She could be independent herself, and rather gloried in it. But she coveted large places for this young brother. "'Well, sir,' said Mr. Harper, following Tom into the little sitting-room after tea, while Helen went with Ermina to the bedroom where her father sat propped in the easy-chair awaiting her, the glowing spots on either cheek telling how wise had been Maria's precaution. "'Well, sir, it is not particularly congenial business, I suppose.' "'Not remarkably so,' Tom answered, with his usual laugh. He meant to be a cheerful martyr, at least. But after all, I owe it a debt of gratitude. These are exceedingly hard times, you know, and I certainly should have had to depend on charity but for this position. I have tried in various ways to better myself, and ended by coming to the conclusion that I am very much to be envied. At least I do not have to be idle.' "'That is the true view of life,' Mr. Harper said. "'Then what about all the other matters? Do you find leisure to work for the other master?' not leisure tom said smiling a rarely sweet smile at least not much of it but some of his work i find can be done even while i am busy about my own yes i am trying i have been helped by this whatsoever ye do do all to the glory of god it is grand to think that even the street-car driver can drive for the glory of god mr harper turned and looked at his young brother-in-law and there was an added touch of interest to his voice, not unmingled with respect, as he said, I think it should help, but just in what way do you find that you can do this thing to his glory? I understand you in a general way, but I am always interested in particulars. They are trifling ways, of course, but I can better illustrate what I mean by giving you an instance. Do you know that we are required to stop at steam-car crossings and wait while the conductor sights the track for a coming train? Well, Dick Norton is a fellow driver of mine. He was on my car the other evening, going down to meet his own at the junction. Our conductor was off duty long enough for supper, and it fell to me to do his work. Drive on, Tom, Dick said as we neared the crossing. I am dead certain that there is no train up for the next ten minutes. It is contrary to one of my mottoes, I said. Of course he was curious to know what motto could apply to car driving, and I quoted to him, Whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, and not unto men. Now what I mean is, I take it that God permits all faithful service to be for his glory, and he gave me a chance to let Dick Norton know it, and poor fellow has had few chances of knowing anything about these matters." Maria was clearing the supper-table. It had been the last smart rap that the golden rule had given her, to let Helen go to the father's room with Ermina while she cleared the table. She heard the illustration, and mused over it as she brushed the crumbs from the cloth. "'His idea of whatsoever is higher than mine,' she said gravely, 
and then she wondered dimly if it was living after the fashion of that word that made Mr. Harper unlike any man whom she ever saw before. Also, whether it was this same influence that was making the change in Ermina, which she too had noticed. Meantime, the talk went on in the sitting-room. "'Is there a young men's Christian association here?' Mr. Harper asked. "'You will think it strange after my long stay here that I do not know all about these things without asking. I was only a transient-comer, you will remember, and the truth is, I was so engrossed with other men's business responsibilities and trusts that were weighing heavily on me, that I had to break away from all my usual work and devote myself to business. I remember making inquiries, but just what was told me I do not remember. "'Well, sir,' said Tom, "'there is, and there isn't. At least that is the way it seems to me. They used to have a flourishing association here, and did much good, they tell me, but it almost died some years ago, and in my opinion it would have been better if it had entirely done so. In that case we might have made a fresh start and accomplished something.' you will have to revive the old institution. Tom shrugged his shoulders. That is such a hard thing to do, he said. I have heard a great many men say it was easier to build a new house than to repair the old one. His brother-in-law laughed. Still, it can be done, he said. What is the element most needed for the rebuilding process? Ahead, Tom said promptly, as one who had thought earnestly on the subject. No one seems willing to take the lead in anything. The former president has moved away, and the vice-president died two years ago, so the association is virtually dead, only it won't believe that it is. Now there is no one to make a president of, apparently. At least those who are fitted for the place are unwilling to try it, and nobody seems very anxious that they should. Mr. Harper laughed heartily. That is certainly a precarious life he said. I am not sure but the best way would be to call it dead, and move for a new creature instead of a resurrection. Still, those things are sometimes hard to do. Why don't you make yourself its head? Tom flushed deeply and spoke with quick, nervous accent. Do you remember how low down in the scale I very lately was? Yes, I remember. You think anyone knows more surely the temptations that beset young men, and the need of helping them? This was a new phase of the subject. The young man looked thoughtful, and after a moment spoke, rather to himself than in answer. There is truth in that. I do feel their need of help, and I feel very anxious to help them. But how to do it is the question. I'll tell you what I would do, Mr. Harper said, after a moment of silence. Rising and taking a seat near his brother, and leaning one elbow on the table, he bent over toward him, speaking with intense earnestness. I would have an association between myself and the master. Elect him president, and put yourself in constant communication with him to follow out his plans. As you from time to time get opportunity to call in other subordinates, do so, and that will give you chance to work the faster. But by all means do not wait for an association, for while they are preparing to organize, Satan is at work. He has that advantage over Christians. His working forces are never disorganized. There was a glow on Tom's face again. This time it was born of eager interest in the thought that was being brought before him. You mean, 
he said quickly, that I am to be on the alert in every direction to help men, especially young men, that I were to act as though I were the very embodiment of a Christian association, and carry out their plans as far as I am able, taking for my helpers such helpers as I can get, and for my leader God himself. Is that what you mean? That is what I mean, now that you have said it, Mr. Harper said with a quiet smile. You have gone deeper into the thought than I had, and made it a better thought. You will be able to carry it out, I am certain. I will certainly try, this young man said, with a quiet air, as one to whom new energies had been suggested, and a new development planned. Mr. Harper had a way of suddenly turning from a subject when he had said just the words he wanted said, and now, with an entire change of tone, he asked, how is the temperance cause prospering in this part of the vineyard? A shadow fell over Tom's face. There is no temperance cause here, he said quickly. It is given over to the other side. Nothing is doing for it, and everything against. Yet the Lord still has a cause, I think. It was very quietly uttered, yet it gave Tom that same start and flush, and brought to him a strange new sense of partnership the remembrance that he was supposed in all these things to be working with the Lord. He needed just this word of encouragement, a reminder rather than a revelation. Yet it came to him with all the freshness of the latter word. He was sometimes very sad-hearted, and had a feeling as if he were quite alone, having no sympathy, at least among the class of people with whom he had daily to mingle. What a sudden glow it brought to his heart to realize that the Lord of heaven and earth was looking on, and helping and interested in the very thought that oppressed him. Surely he could afford to be alone, so far as human helpers were concerned. It suggested another thought, that he would be very careful how he got on the wrong side of a question, so as to feel that the Lord was against him. To work against that force was surely to fail in the end and, apart from every other consideration, who wants to fail? Thinking these thoughts, he was still again, until Mr. Harper asked another question. What is the greatest obstacle in the way of work in that direction? Again the answer was prompt, as of one who had done the thinking on these themes long ago. Consecrated Purses Mr. Harper was startled. He had talked this subject over with many people, he had asked this question often before. He had received various answers. Prejudice, indifference, wrong methods, and many another hovering around the same idea, but never once this clear, ringing sentence, two words, the voice decided firm and earnest. Consecrated purses. Mr. Harper withdrew his arm from the table and sat erect. What do you mean? he asked and there was interest not only, but curiosity in his voice. Why, I mean this. The great temptation, of course, is rum, and it is wonderful to think in how many places in this city it can be found. Only think of the fact that, however much you might desire it, you could not find a hotel to stop at throughout the length and breadth of this whole city where liquor is not sold. Is that actually so? Mr. Harper said in astonishment. It is really so, and not only that, but the large boarding-houses, where most of the working men who are without homes of their own have to gather, have side-tables where they retail beer and whiskey. 
temptation is spread on every hand not only for those who want it fearfully by reason of an already formed taste but for those who because of no better place in which to spend their leisure time are compelled to look on until they too follow the general example and your remedy is mr harper asked inquiringly and there was respectful tone in his voice he was learning something from his young brother-in-law why if i had the purse i would have a temperance hotel and it shouldn't be one of those seventh-rate affairs such as you find in some of our large cities i would use satan's own weapons if they do really belong to him with which to fight him i mean i would have the carpets and mirrors and sofas and brilliant gaslights and the glitter of silver and everything else that is used to entice and entrap i would have such a place as would offer not a shadow of excuse to any living man for not stopping at the temperance house except the one honest reason that he wanted to go where there was rum but when you talk to temperance men they sigh and say but that would take an immense amount of money so i say what we need most is consecrated purses to all this eager outburst of words mr harper answered not a single word he arose and went to walking slowly up and down the room intent apparently on studying the different shades in the carpet tom watching him curiously concluded that he was disturbed by some shadowed memory that the talk had called forth but the next question was so utterly foreign to anything that had been said or that could have been suggested that he was puzzled this was the question by the way how is peter armstrong peter is working away faithfully as ever and puzzling away over the mistakes and labors of his namesake peter bible he is the queerest and the best fellow that ever lived and tom in his heart said what in creation put him into your mind just at this moment back and forth went mr harper through the little room several times more then he wheeled and said in a quiet voice well suppose we go in and see the dear father End of chapter 3